Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and A930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we have uh, the privilege of being able to engage this very rich topic of theology of the body. And wherever you may be accessing this radio program by way of uh, podcast, we welcome you if you are in the countries of uh, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, anywhere in Central America, Western Europe, uh, Portugal, France, Italy, Spain, we welcome you. And all of you out there in the Philippines, uh, China, I see you on the index feed. We welcome you. It really is an honor that you are taking 25 to 30 minutes out of uh, your busy schedules to listen to us here in the friendly confines of Chico, California. And as I noted last week, um, I would have Derek, Ellen, and Chris Seibert joining me this week while Derek was unable to join me, but Chris Seibert is in studio here. So Chris, great to have you with me this evening. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here, and that's quite a lineup you just went through. I'm <laughs> impressed and uh, maybe a little uh, little more uh, daunted by your <laughs> international appeal. Well, by the grace of God go I, and by the grace of God go all of us, huh? Amen. You know, Chris, I- I've been looking forward to having you join me again because... As you know, and as many of our listeners know, when you are working with Christopher West and what he does with John Paul II's Theology of the Body, you're going to tap into some contemporary reflections. I'm thinking of the work, The Love That Satisfies, where he devoted a whole chapter with The Truman Show. He used The Truman Show as an analogy to better understand theology of the body. So you're going to get that with Christopher West. Well, this work we are in now, and this is our third week now, Fill These Hearts, is all about Christopher West taking his understanding of American popular culture, and through a series of uh, popular music, movie clips, YouTube videos, and other artistic works, presents a contemporary exposition of the gospel that essentially is an invitation to better understand the good news itself, right? As he notes, you know, what does Jesus say? Invite everyone to the wedding feast. Go into the main streets, do what Paul did, and invite everyone to the wedding feast. This is what this book is about. I love uh, one paragraph he has, and this is in his uh, prelude. He says, art is the language of the heart. Sometimes a song lyric, a melody, or a movie scene can illuminate truths in a way that academic theology cannot. I'm going to tell you, Chris, I could not agree with him more. Sometimes, and certainly this was a huge point for Vatican II, one that then uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who we know as Benedict XVI, commented on in Vatican II. He said, and this is him standing up to the council some 50 years ago, we need to bring the message down, right? We need to take what is so incomprehensible and make it comprehensible by using a language that people can understand, mm-hmm. right? So Fill These Hearts is a book that was originally a project where Christopher West, espousing towards what then Ratzinger was talking about, essentially taking what is so incomprehensible and making it comprehensible 
by using that which is familiar to the people. Joe, it was really, I guess comforting is the word I'd use, to think about all the times that I've been, let's say, late night listening to a certain song that I may not have heard in many a year, and drawing something from the lyric or from the melody that was kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And here, mm-hmm. you know, I would kind of check and make sure nobody's looking because I don't want to, you know, have anybody walk in and tears are streaming sure. down my face. But it was something transcendent that was touching me at the core of my being. And what Christopher West does is he draws out in this book, which I've been really, really uh, enjoying, he draws out those experiences into a theological perspective. Like you're just saying, it makes so much sense to me what Cardinal Ratzinger was saying back in the 60s. Make sure that we are meeting the, the, the people where they are experiencing the gospel. I, I really resonates with me. Yeah, we, we knock on the door, get to know the person who's, who's on the other side of that door, and hopefully they invite us in. And the whole goal of what Christopher West is doing, and essentially the church and her mission, the new evangelization, is about having uh, them follow us when we walk out of the home. Which, of course, as I say that, Chris, is having them follow Jesus Christ. If we are doing what we are supposed to be doing, we are simply following the Master. Yes. And, you know, this just isn't Christopher West or Ratzinger. Listen to what John Paul II himself says. Even beyond its typically religious expressions, true art has a close affinity with the world of faith, so that even in situations where culture and the Church are far apart, art remains a kind of bridge to religious experience. And then Christopher West notes, this book, with its many references to the songs and movies of the culture, seeks to cross that bridge. Again, this is the essence of what the new evangelization is about. And when we talk about art, it's important to pull back a little bit here, Chris, and be mindful of what we intend to mean when we say art. We're just not talking about pictures per se. When we think about art, we also include in that certainly music and songs and and even movies and and writing. You know, writing is an art. So uh, art is, uh, no pun intended, one broad brushstroke, if you will, that taps into uh, many different genres. And Joe, I know um, you've talked on this show a lot about theology being faith-seeking understanding. Well, for me, in a lot of ways, there's the understanding meeting mm-hmm. the faith, yes. where I have this, this moment of insight that's given to me through art or music or, or a movie. And it's, it's a profound connection to this timeless truth and this timeless love that the gospel is always, you know, seeking us out for. Mm-hmm. So it's, I love the, the image of the bridge well, and I know you have a great love for, for music, Chris, and, and I do want to pause to consider this here briefly. Why does music speak to us the way it does, and why do we get emotional about it? Well, Thomas Aquinas says, on one level, yes, music is a pleasure to the ear and a delight to the mind, but on another level, it is because it's uh, the language of the soul, <laughs> You know, and as such, yeah. we are constantly seeking out music. I mean, everyone has their favorite song. Everyone has their favorite artist. Everyone likes to go to a good concert. Underneath it all lies that overarching truth, Chris, that music itself is the language of the soul. And when we hear music, 
that is beautiful, something to be contemplated, certainly that's what we gravitate towards. And it is no wonder that Satan himself seeks to hijack uh, any good uh, and beautiful music. Why? Because he understands the power of music. As one who was once head of the choir of angels, he takes that which rightfully belongs to God and presents it to, to us as something that it is not. Now, what Christopher West does, and I love this, is he shows that even the music we listen to today in secular circles has something in of itself, whether it be a lyric, a line, that points to a deeper truth. So even music that we might not be hearing, Chris, at our Sunday service or Mass can be used for the greater glory of God. Now, I know a lot of people struggle with that when they hear it, but certainly this book and how it presents contemporary music pointing to a deeper truth is an exposition of this very point. And what is it that musicians are trying to do? They are yearning for the, the bigger picture, the greater truth. Maybe not in a direct way, mm-hmm. but, you know, like it was spoken of when they sent up this uh, module to, mm-hmm. to call out to potential other worlds that might hear it. We put a, a piece by Beethoven mm-hmm. because... How else can you express the yearning that we as humans feel? We have this yearning to be a part of something larger than ourselves. Beethoven expresses that better than, you know, we're looking for something larger mm-hmm, than ourselves. Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. listen to the music. Mm-hmm. That is timeless. It's international. It's, I don't know, what was it? Intergalactical. I don't know where you go with that. But I completely identified with why you would put such a, uh, a piece of art to, to be symbolic of humans, humanity's yearning. Yeah, and it was really striking as Christopher West was reflecting into that, that longing, that ache as he spoke to it was also tied to what but a, a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And so not only do you have Beethoven, but you also have a heartbeat, which is a whole mm-hmm. other program, but certainly yeah. it speaks to the whole issue of pro-life. So you spoke to longing, yearning, Chris, and that's really what the first chapter was all about. And I had received several questions from different folks uh, from different places about uh, the desire to hear more about uh, that great word complementarity. Now, I didn't even use that word per, per se, but certainly Christopher West spoke to it mm-hmm. when he said this, think about it, a man's body makes no sense by itself, and a woman's body makes no sense by itself. Seen in light of each other, the picture becomes complete. We go together. As I noted last week, you know, you have that great line from Jerry Maguire, you complete me every time to become one, male and female say to one another, uh, you complete me. Yeah. Now, that being said, Chris, as we speak to complementarity within the context of male and female, there's an additional truth that helps us better understand this great word, complementarity. And to understand that truth, we turn to creation itself. Peter Kraft, in uh, one video, speaks so beautifully to this. He's out on the shore, and he's sitting on a rock, and he says, look at this rock. This rock is essentially masculine, right? It's strong, it's firm, it's not going anywhere. Look out into the water. It's feminine. It's fertile. What do you think of when you think Mm -hmm. of water? Life. Mm -hmm. Now, 
when the water crashes into the rock, there's something that is deeply satisfying about that. And so even in creation, you get this coming together that when you have a complementarity in something that is masculine and in something that is feminine, there is something deeply satisfying about it. And if you really want to probe this point, you go into the, the history of it and in antiquity, you know, the Iroquois have a, a term for this. It's called arenda. Essentially, that was their way of saying how the great spirit, as they would put it, put spirit into matter, uh, particularly in, you know, the stars. You know, Christopher mm-hmm. West talks about the stars. Stars. Desire comes Yes, from. Uh, the oceans, um, even trees. Now, we don't live in water, we don't live in the stars, and we don't live in trees, yet you and I have talked about a great deal, Chris, and are many times uh, spent together that there's something that is almost like a magnetic pull when we're around water, mm. uh, beautiful trees, you know, looking up at the stars. Yeah. We can't always put a word or phrase to it, but in many ways, it's like, you know, iron to magnets, you know, it's just, yeah. it's the coming together. And sometimes when I think, uh, as you're speaking about my draw to the ocean, I mean, I could spend all day at the ocean and all night, and, and, and I'd be perfectly happy because there is something so um, hypnotic, I guess. And for me to put it into words, I almost feel like, you know what? Words mm-hmm. are too limiting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why? I, I feel like, well, what did, <laughs> a, a great line that, that came out of, I think, one of the uh, uh, musician's mouth is, I want to tear the sky open and open it up mm-hmm. and let God in. Yes. It's yeah. that kind of feeling where, yeah, the only way you can express that is poetically or musically, mm-hmm. lyrically. When you speak to it in the context of complementarity and desire, why is it, Chris, that you know the most expensive property you'll ever find in any one country that has a shoreline is waterfront property? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because that's where people long to go, right. because they want to look out at the water. Water in of itself is never enough because they just want to sit on a rock. A rock in of itself is never enough. They want to be where the two come together. Why? Because we innately long desire for that coming together, where in this case, the water and the land meet. And why do we speak to it in this way? Because in creation itself, we've been given a revelation about a deeper truth as it relates to male and female. There's something primal and uh, kind of instinctual about it. And I know John Paul II talked about marriage being the primordial sacrament. And here yes. we are with the masculine and the feminine coming together. Not any profound written truth coming at us, but just a, a symbolic truth that keeps drawing us back. And it makes us want to stay. That's why I'll pay my $3 million for my yes. oceanfront property. Yes, okay? yes. And within that, you talk about, well, it's... It's something that you don't even want to put words to because mystery itself was made to be contemplated. You just want to be there. Yeah. It's being, not doing. It's mm-hmm. just, let yep. me exist here. This is, this is a beautiful thing. And that's the essence of contemplation. You know, mm-hmm. Chris, it's not the means, but the ends in itself. In fact, yeah. when you start talking about contemplation, there's two key characteristics. The first is the ends. You don't contemplate means, you contemplate ends. And we are wired for God, Chris. 
So when we go to a place, especially a shoreline, we are meeting our Creator, and we are just innately drawn into the mystery where suddenly life is not a problem to be solved abruptly, but a mystery to be contemplated always. And so we enter into that, and what we do is we see that, yes, the beauty of creation is something to be contemplated. Now, suddenly, the means, you know, whatever we need to do, we will do to get there. I mean, if you think about it, if I'm going to cross town because I have an appointment with a good friend, I will do whatever it takes to to get there if it's, say, in 30 minutes. I'll I'll get a bus, I'll get a train, I'll get, a, get in a car, whatever Just like I need me, to I, do. I hitchhiked to get here tonight, Joe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> well, sure, no, but it, it drives home the point. Whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes, because it is the end that directs our steps, governs our activity, coordinates our thoughts and movements. Essentially, the means are mere points of passage, as it were, Chris. They are merely used. None of them become, we could say, thematic, except in the context of its usefulness for the end. We are not intent on them as such, nor do we take any one of them seriously as a whole. In its essence, we are only interested in them according to their usefulness for our purpose, which is the end. And that's what contemplation is about. What's more here, Chris, I think this is so important and so often overlooked is when you talk about contemplation, there has to be an object that affects the heart. We go to the shorelines, we go to the waterfronts, we pay the $3 million. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, we have found what we have been looking for, what we have been longing for. And the object that we see, it affects the heart. And suddenly now, uh, God the Father in His creation has welled up something within us that now has us moving to something deeper something bigger than us, which is so much of what this book is about. Absolutely. And I had written in the uh, margin here, longing for the true, the good, and the beautiful, it's the language of transcendence, Mm -hmm. what you're just speaking to. It's the desire in us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, something, obviously, God being that ultimate end. Well, and once again, uh, Chris, it goes back to the complementarity piece. If I own that $3 million waterfront, it's just not about gazing out into the water, or nor is it just about hanging out on the beach. We gaze out into the water because of the way it comes up on the beach. We look at the beach because of the way the water crashes upon the beach, or the way the water crashes on the rock. If the water is the she and the, the rock is the he, it's about where the she and the he meet. That's what we crave, the encounter, mm-hmm. right? And this is what lies at the heart of John Paul II's vision for theology of the body and what uh, Christopher West was just talking about there, right? We look in the mirror, mm-hmm. and we simply do not make sense without the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. So it's about the biology, yes, but there's, there's something more. It's what the biology signifies, the giving and the receiving, the active, right, and the nurturing, the constructing. You know, inside the womb, the baby begins to take shape and form, right? And so when you begin to put these two characteristics in light of the the deeper truth concerning our personality, something is awakened within us. And that's so important when you're talking about complementarity. And then... You know, it's interesting, Chris, uh, you have four children, 
Uh, I have four children. Yours yes. are older. Mine are younger. Mm-hmm. And I'm experiencing right now something I know you experienced on many occasions. Uh, that is my oldest daughter, who is eight years old. She's very much into the princess queen theme, <laughs> right? And right. all she wants, Chris, is to be told that she's what? Beautiful. Beautiful. That, that, that's all she wants, right? Mm-hmm. Both my sons, one nine and one four, definitely the four-year-old, he comes bustling through down the hall. He's wearing his superhero's outfit. And what does he want to be told? He's a superhero. Yeah, that he can protect, that he can accomplish great things, that, that he can overcome any obstacle, huh? Yes. So there is something innate in my little girl and in my little boy that has them expressing themselves in this particular way, right? My little girl wanting to be a princess and being told she is beautiful. And my little boy wanting to be a superhero and <laughs> wanting to be told that he can leap mountains and protect anyone and everyone at all times. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Joe, um, our bodies are more than pieces of a puzzle coming together. Yes. To, to, to look at it physiologically. But there are profound truths in the physical uh, that are they're spiritual and this complementarity, it goes to a, a bigger truth yes. than just the physical. Yes, and I want to speak to something here. Chris, I know for some of our listeners, they hear some of the language we use, and they might say, well, you are so stereotypical. When you start talking about stereotypes, we have to be careful about how we think about this in relationship to the words we use, because as Christians and as Catholics, <laughs> Chris, huh, We should be offended by stereotypes. In this sense, stereotypes are artificial. They're man-made, something that we have essentially created. This is different than archetypes. Okay, what are archetypes are built into things. This is the natural law. Okay, this is not man-created. You cannot change archetypes, right? This this, This is the stuff of bigger picture, the natural law. So you have an archetype, which is built into things, and a stereotype, that which is artificial and man-created. We've confused the two, I think, and when you start breaking down what those words mean, they mean two very different things. Um, So the essence of this, Chris, is not to flatten out our language, if you will. Mm Uh, not to sanitize masculinity or to shoot testosterone into femininity. These words, masculinity and femininity, that are archetypes that speak to personality, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, These are things that speak to what rightfully belongs to God. And when you start talking about how we are created in the image and likeness of God, remember Genesis 1.26, yes, we're creating the image and likeness of God, but Genesis 1.27, what does it say? In our maleness and in our femaleness, in our masculinity and in our femininity. So this is very important to any discussion on theology of the body. So the image I'm, I'm seeing again is going back to Jerry Maguire, that perfectly poetic way of saying, you complete me, not on a, on a base level, but on you know a, a full circle level. Yes, and uh, you not only quote-unquote, complete me. But I think there's something else here, Chris. You enrich me. You make life worth living, 
right? My desire just isn't fulfilled when we enter into that consummative act. No, it is fulfilled every time I die to self and learn the deeper language of love. Then what begins to happen, and John Paul II speaks this so beautifully, is we desire to love more because, remember, Chris, what you feed grows. That, again, archetypal proverb, archetypal principle, what you feed grows. The more we love, the more we will want to love. And then it becomes our desire. Suddenly, suddenly, that life, which for so many of us is reduced to just the sexual desire, is so much more. We're reminded of John Paul II's great line that the sexual urge is just the raw material for the more authentic love to develop. Essentially, agape there being eros's finished form. So very important. So when I think of being a male and, uh, you know, being a giver, uh, in, in that, what does that mean? It means not just giving physically, but it means giving of service, being the uh, catalyst, if you will, for service, catalyst to protect. Am I right? Amen. Thinking like that? Yes, okay. absolutely. And even that passage that comes to us from Ephesians 5, women serve your husbands, uh, husbands, as Christ loves the church, love your wives. Essentially what that's saying is, women, allow your husbands to die to self to serve you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is what that's saying. And, and nurture that. Yes. Receive yes. it and nurture it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for us, some of us, to be served. Mm-hmm. It's hard for some of us to receive uh, a gift. It's hard for some of us to be on the other end of of all of that dying, all of all that sacrificing. But if a marriage is going to produce its necessary fruit, it must be received and it must be given. So once again, when you start talking about the two becoming one and the donation of the flesh, when you hear the word flesh, Chris, and marriage, it's just about the consummative act. It's just about the two becoming one. When in reality, the donation of the flesh is so much more. Mm-hmm. You know, when when man gives himself totally and entirely in uh, the sexual act, there is nothing that he is holding back. Nothing that he is holding back and there's often very little that can stop him, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way, we are made to see in its everyday rhythm and tenor and routine uh, how we are as males called to give everything to our spouses, holding nothing back and letting nothing stop us. Mm-hmm. That is the deeper truth of how the complementarity of our biology points to the complementarity of the much richer experience that male and female are, are to encounter in the sacrament of marriage. All right, Chris, well, that's pretty much a wrap. I have barely blinked, uh, literally, and I feel like our time is up. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts. You know, something that just really jumped off the page for me was a quote by John Paul II, where he observes, our bodies show us who we are and also who we are meant to be. And I've spent some time reflecting on that and will continue to do so because Mm -hmm. there's something very important for me and I'm sure for many of our listeners in that. Well, and it's a gentle reminder, Chris, that there's always going to be a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be, which means we have never arrived. You know, as one priest once said, once you think you are something, you are nothing, because the process of conversion never stops. The becoming is the essence. 
of conversion itself. Because I've always wanted to use your language on this, Joe, not on this side of the beatific vision. <laughs> That's right. Not Amen. until the other side. <laughs> That's right. Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.